this morning. Let's start out, however, in Matthew 27. This is Lesson 183b, The Burial of the Lord Jesus Christ, Part 2. All right, let's bow together and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father God, we thank you for the weather, even though sometimes we're, we tend to complain about it. We do thank you for the sunshine and the rain. We thank you for the cold and the heat. We thank you that you are in control, that you are creator, and you just have given us such a beautiful world to live on. We thank you for that. We thank you also that your word is a rock upon which we can most certainly build our lives. Thank you that we have this rock of your word. We have the rock, your son. We don't have to live our lives on shifting sand. We're thankful for that. We thank you that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. And we want that reward to be that we please the heart of your beloved son. I do pray, Father, that joy will be brought to his heart this morning by the spiritual hunger he sees in these dear women, women who long to know you deeper and to know your son deeper and and to know the truths of your word. And even such seemingly small things as bones not being broken and your body being pierced and today the burial that we will be looking on. We want to know it all, Father, and we do pray that we will please you by our hunger and by our thoughts and by our praise that goes on within our hearts as we learn. May we be faithful, Lord, and may we be bold disciples who will glorify you in a world that is growing increasingly antagonistic to you and to your Son and to your Holy Word. We ask for a, a, a boldness. We thank you for your grace, and we thank you for this time that is set apart in this week to open your word that we're free to yet do so. We pray your son will be blessed in all that is said and thought here this morning, for we do pray in his beloved name. Amen. Well, have you felt like an eyewitness of the events that it took place on Calvary? Have you almost felt like you've been there? I do. I visualize it in my mind as we're studying. And after all that we have felt ourselves almost eyewitnesses of during the entire history of our Lord's six trials and his scourging and his passion on the cross, it is almost as though we can now hear the gentle sound of the solemn stillness that reigns on Calvary. The crowds have vacated a few stragglers, perhaps John, and a group of dear Galilean women, and maybe a relative or two of the two crucified thieves are all that is left, other than, of course, the Roman guard who has to clean up. And they may be busy with the removal of the bodies of those two thieves from their crosses, waiting, perhaps, for instructions on what they are to do with that significant middleman. And there, the crucified Redeemer still hangs, suspended between heaven and earth, his head crowned with thorns, reclined upon his breast. What was to be done with the body of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you realize this is very critical for us to know? It is very critical for us to know what became of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our subject for this morning's lesson. 
And it is crucial because it is one of the three tenets of the gospel message. Did you ever realize that the gospel is a trinity? It consists of three parts. We are given the definition for the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. It consists of three parts. It says Christ died for our sins. Number one, he died for our sins according to the scriptures. Second, and he was buried. And third, and he arose again the third day according to the scriptures. In our study, Christ has died. Did he die according to the scriptures? Yes, he did. And now he must be buried. All right, so now he must be buried. And because it is part of the gospel message that was planned from eternity past to be declared to the entire world. So, was Jesus buried? i got to step back a little bit so you don't get that ringing. Was he buried? Was Jesus buried? Of course he was. And as simple as that sounds to you and I, it is really amazing that he was buried. It really is amazing that he was buried because it was not the common practice for the bodies of crucified victims to be buried, either by the Romans or by the Jews. Do you realize that? That was not the common practice for criminals to be buried. But God had ordered otherwise. And he had prepared two honorable men to emerge from the secrecy of their discipleship at the precise moment in time to be entrusted with the burial of Emmanuel's body. God with us. All four Gospels tell us about the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is important. In fact, it is the most significant burial in all human history. Do you realize that? The most significant burial ever. The burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in our last lesson, we looked at the Lord's body in the hands of his enemies. We have better news today. We get to look at the Lord's body in the hands of his friends. Friends. Well, there is an outline in your books. Um, we looked at the preservation of his bones, and we looked at the piercing of his body. Today, we're going to be covering the provision for his burial. There are three subsections to that part, the plea, the preparation, the place. But as we go through this together, I don't want to chop up our lesson by stopping and reading each section. So what we're going to do is take the time to read what all four Gospels have to say about the burial of the Lord Jesus. This is important to do because they each give us a little bit more information. So we're going to start by reading from Matthew 27, verses 57 to 60. So look with me at Matthew 27, 57, where it says, When the even was come, that would be the even hour for them was like three to six, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. Now, we're not going to cover verse 61, but I do want to read it. 
It says, and there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. What were those two women doing? Watching, watching. They were watching to see what happened to the Lord's body. And they were witnesses of what took place. Now let's move over to Mark 15 and look at verses 43 to 46. Mark 15, starting at verse 43. I'll go ahead and let let you catch up, but I'm going to go ahead reading for time's sake. It says, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor. That means he was a member of the Sanhedrin Council of Israel, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. He desired it. He begged for it. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. And calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulcher which was hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulcher. And look at verse 47. We'll discuss this next week, but verse 47 again tells us about the witnesses. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, beheld where he was laid. You think it was important that they knew where he was laid? Yes, it was. All right, now we'll move over to Luke. Luke 23, Luke 23, and let's look at verses 50 to 40, uh, 50 to 54, excuse me, Luke 23, 50. Now, this is amazing, it really is amazing, that Joseph emerged at this time, so Luke tells us about the amazement of it when he says, and behold, wow, behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man. And a just, meaning a just man. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. What does that mean? He did not consent with the counsel about putting Jesus to death. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never man was before laid, or before was laid. And that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew on. And the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. All right, one more place. And you can count on the fact that John is going to give us information we haven't heard yet so go to john 19 john 19 and let's look at verses 38 to 42 john 19 38 and after this joseph of arimathea being a disciple of jesus but secretly for fear of the jews besought pilate that he might take away the body of jesus and pilate gave him leave he came therefore and took the body of jesus Now, here's where we get some new information. And there came also, who? Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred pound weight. Then they, they, then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen cloths or clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. 
Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. What does that mean? The sepulcher, the tomb where they put Jesus, was close to Golgotha and was right nearby Calvary. All right, I think you can go back to Matthew, but you may want to also find Isaiah chapter 53. All right. Well, we learned in our lesson last time that the Jews, the religious rulers, had wanted the three crucifixion victims dead and their bodies removed from their crosses before the high day Sabbath began at sundown. Although Roman custom decreed that the victim's death struggle would last as long as possible, and also Roman custom decreed that their corpses, once they died, would be left hanging on trees until they disintegrated or they were just eaten away by nature and ravenous birds of prey and animals, etc., just awful to think about. But they did that to be a deterrent against breaking Roman law, even though that was Roman custom to let them hang maybe for days until they died and let their bodies hang there until they rotted away. Yet we find that Pilate consented to the Jews to perform crucifracture, have the legs broken. Of course, Jesus had already died, hadn't he? So he didn't have to have a bone of his body broken to fulfill the the, uh, prophecy of uh, Exodus and the Passover lamb. Um, But it is absolutely amazing that Pilate did agree to their request. And it was probably because of political reasons he didn't want to have an uprising at the time of Passover. Well, not only is the record that we just read of what took place with the Lord's body contrary to the normal Roman custom, but it was also contrary to Jewish custom, which decreed that the bones or the bodies of criminals not be buried in family tombs not be buried even at all, that they would be thrown in a, a, you know, like a mass burial pit. Of course, the, the Jews would cover the pit because they didn't believe in desecrating the land with bodies on top. The Romans would just throw the bodies in a big heap, but the Jews would throw outside of the city in a big burial pit and just, you know, keep adding more bodies and covering it up. That's what they, because they didn't believe that a criminal worthy of death deserve to be buried properly, and especially in a, a rich man's tomb, in a, in a family tomb. And we know this because of Josephus in his book, The Antiquity of the Jews. So by both Roman and Jewish custom, what we learn in the gospel accounts regarding the Lord's body should not have happened, should not have happened. The normal assignment of a grave place with the wicked did not happen. Now, I'm sure it happened for the two thieves who were crucified with Jesus. They were probably thrown into the Valley of Hinnom, which was called by the Jews Gehinnom or Gehenna. Does that sound familiar? It was such an awful place where they threw the bodies that they started equating that terrible place with hell. And they called, basically called hell Gehenna. And that's probably where the bodies of the two thieves went. Well, why didn't the Lord's body go there? Well, for one thing, it didn't happen because he was not wicked. He was not a criminal. He never broke a single law, did he? And he didn't even blaspheme God, did he? No, because he was God. 
And when he said he was the son of God, it wasn't blaspheming. It was true. For another reason, he wasn't thrown away like that because that was not God's predetermined plan for the body of his dearly beloved son. You see, there was yet another prophecy to be fulfilled. And even though it was something completely contrary to both Roman and Jewish customs of that day, this prophecy would be fulfilled. Right? God's prophecies are always fulfilled. It might take time, but they're always fulfilled. His word does not return void. What was this ancient prophecy that needed to be fulfilled? Well, this is where I wanted you to go over to Isaiah 53. We've been here many times in our study. We're going to go back there yet one more time. And I want to remind you of some of the things that it says in Isaiah. It's an amazing chapter. It tells us a lot about what the Lord went through in his sufferings and in his passion. And we have been back here, back and forth, numerous times. But let me just remind you a little bit of some of the things, starting at verse 3, where it says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was, what? Cut off. This now speaks about his death. He was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people was he stricken. And now notice verse 9. And he made his grave with the wicked. In the Hebrew, the wicked there is plural. He made his grave with the wicked, plural, and with the rich. That word in the Hebrew is singular. So his grave was made, decreed to be with the wicked, plural. But he was buried in his death with a singular rich. Man. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. We have, as I said, looked at Isaiah 53 very many times. Now, this is a chapter that the Jewish rabbis to this day still do not want their people to read. Because what does it so obviously point to? Who does it obviously point to? The Lord Jesus. So they've taken it and they tell them not to read it. And they um, they have said, taught their people that it is really speaking about Israel and not about Jesus, the Messiah that the Christians believe in. But it's, it's just obvious that it does. Anyway, um, it's a shame because it is a powerful, powerful chapter. And it is amazing. What I want to ask, was there scriptural authority for us? To, to do this, to take Isaiah 53 and a lot of the things we learned about his suffering and his passion and say that it applied to Jesus or are the Jews right? Are we right or are they right? Well, 
we're right because we do have scriptural authority to do that. We have seen that over and over again. For example, in John 12:38, the Bible referred back to Isaiah 53 verse 1 and said it was fulfillment of that. We had Matthew 28:17 um, that pointed back to Isaiah 53 verse 4 and there was Mark 9:12 which pointed us back to Isaiah 53 verse 2. And there are lots of passages in the New Testament epistles that also take us back to Isaiah 53 and say, yes, this was speaking about the Lord as he was suffering on the cross. But if you notice in verses 8 and 9 of Isaiah, it suddenly speaks of matters after the Lord was cut off from the land of the living. So do we likewise have confirmation from Scripture that this was also speaking of Christ? when it says that his grave was assigned with the wicked, but he is buried, will be buried, this was, you know, in the past, speaking of the future, that he would be buried in a rich man, with a rich man in his death. Do we have scriptural confirmation for that? And do you know where it is? We do. But it's in a place that you probably wouldn't think about just right off the top of your head. Go to Acts chapter 8. The book of Acts of all places. Acts chapter 8. Let me find it too. Here we go. Many centuries after Isaiah had penned the inspired words of that amazing chapter 53, there was a man who had traveled in his chariot to worship in Jerusalem. He was a Jewish man. And he went to Jerusalem to worship. And as he was on his way back home in his chariot to Ethiopia, he was reading, but not understanding, Isaiah 53. He had a scroll, apparently, and that's the chapter in the Old Testament that he was reading on his way back. But he wasn't understanding what he was reading. So in His marvelous way, God the Holy Spirit sent Philip, not the Apostle Philip, but one of the early deacons of the church, Philip, who was also an evangelist. He sent Philip to that very place. And, excuse me, Philip heard the Ethiopian eunuch reading from the section of Isaiah that we just read together. And Philip asked the man if he understood what he was reading. And the man did not. And so he asked Philip, he said, Of whom is the prophet speaking? Of himself? Is Isaiah speaking of himself here? Or of another? Of some other man? And then we are told, I think it's in verse 35, that Philip, beginning at the very place where the Ethiopian had been reading, which happened to be verses 7 and 8 of Isaiah 53, beginning at that place, he preached to him who? Jesus! Do we have, do we have authorization from scripture to say that Isaiah 53 is all about Jesus even after he's cut off? Yes, we do. And from the most unusual place, Acts chapter 8. So this is additional scriptural authorization for believing that the contents of Isaiah 53 are about the Lord. And that fulfillment included verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men. And yet, 
He was with a rich man, singular, in his death. Why was he assigned a grave with wicked men? Because this was both Jewish and Roman custom for a man who had been condemned to death and then hung on a tree. So why then, instead, was he buried with a rich man in his death? That's pretty amazing difference, isn't it? Well, we're given the answer in the rest of verse 9. It tells us, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Why wasn't he buried with wicked men? Because he was completely innocent. He had committed no crime whatsoever. Think about the details and the explicit providence of God that brought these details to fulfillment. Isaiah 53, 9 is absolutely just as remarkable as everything else in that incredible chapter. It speaks of someone who is assigned to a certain burial with criminals, but it doesn't work out that way at all. Big, big change. In fact, he's buried in a rich man's tomb. So how was this fulfilled? Well, let's go back to Matthew 27, or go forward to Matthew 27, to look to the fulfillment and the man responsible for it. His name is Joseph, and he's from Arimathea, which they're not really sure where that was, but if it's the same place as where the prophet Samuel was born, it was about 25 miles away from Jerusalem. That could be because it sounds a lot like Arimathea. I can't pronounce it, but it starts with an R. And they speculate that maybe that's where Arimathea was, about 25 miles out of Jerusalem. This is the only time in the entire gospel accounts that we ever hear of this man concerning the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. We don't know anything about him previous. Well, we do, (laughs) actually. We don't know anything about him afterwards, that's for sure. But this is the only place that we ever hear of him. It's concerning the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, do you know, this is so fascinating, we know more about Joseph of Arimathea than we do the majority of the apostles. Isn't that something? I mean, really, tell me how much you know about Thaddeus, okay? (laughs) We know more about Joseph than we do most of the apostles. Isn't it absolutely fascinating to see how God works? That's what I have enjoyed so much about this study, uh, among a lot of other things, but it's just absolutely fascinating. Other than young John, none of the Lord's apostles who had openly identified themselves with Jesus for more than three years, for over three years. None of them, however, were there for Jesus during his crucifixion, except young John. They had all suddenly become secret disciples, hadn't they? You know, smite the shepherd and the sheep are scattered. They all ran away. But now, all of a sudden, two formerly secret disciples emerge to boldly identify themselves with Jesus in his death. Isn't that something? And at a time when it wasn't really smart or safe to become a disciple of Jesus. I mean, after all, he had just been crucified, right? (laughs) Their purpose in coming out of their secrecy was to demonstrate their devotion to him. 
by providing a respectable burial for his body. Think of this. If it had not been for Joseph and Nicodemus, the Lord's body would have been thrown into a place of great dishonor and disgrace and obscurity. Who would ever know where it was and what happened to it? None of his apostles made any effort to get his body, did they? They didn't. Shame on you, Peter. I mean, none of them came forward to try to claim the Lord's body and give it a decent burial. The women, I do believe, would have, but they didn't have the clout to do so. They wouldn't have been able to present themselves before Pilate and beg for the body of Jesus. They wouldn't even gotten past the front door. So, so Joseph is a very important person because he really makes it possible for you and I to have confidence in two-thirds of the gospel trinity, the burial and the resurrection. Because of Joseph, we do know that he was buried. And because we know he was buried and where he was buried in the circumstances of the burial, therefore we have confidence in the resurrection. We could almost really stretch it and say because of Joseph, we also have confirmation that Jesus was dead. He went to Pilate. Pilate was shocked that Jesus was already dead, so he confirmed it by calling in the Roman centurion and getting confirmation that, yes, he was dead. So because of Joseph, we have confidence in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He was an important man. There are ten facts given to us about Joseph in the four Gospels. But the very, very first detail that is given to us, when you read through the New Testament, what book do you start with? Matthew. So if you're reading, you come, the first thing that you read about Joseph is found in Matthew 27, verse 57. And the very first thing we learn, even before we learn Joseph's name, is that he was a rich man. Why do you think the first thing the Holy Spirit tells us about him is that he was rich? Obviously, to take us back to Isaiah 53, verse 9. It's the exact same word in the Greek that was used in the Hebrew in Isaiah 53, 9. He was a rich man. Well, what else do we know about him besides the fact that his name was Joseph and he was from Arimathea? We know that he was a prominent member of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, which only consisted of 70 men plus the high priest, so he was a big deal in Israel. He was an important man. He was an honorable man, we were told by Mark. He was a good man. And remember that other word? Just. He was a just man. And he had not consented to what the council decided to do regarding Jesus. He was a member of the believing remnant of Israel who were praying for the Messiah to come. Mark and Luke told us that. So he was like Simeon and Anna and Elizabeth Elizabeth and Zacharias and, and Mary and Joseph and so many more. He was waiting for the Messiah to come, longing and looking for him. And the most important thing about Joseph was that he was a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes the Lord puts his people in the most unusual places, doesn't he? Do you think he's doing that today? Do you think he has his people in places of prominence waiting to use them for such a time as this? 
Yes. Didn't he do that with Esther? Put her there. She saved her people from annihilation. What about Daniel in Babylon? What about Joseph? Not of Arimathea, but the first Joseph. Took years, but God was working. And he put him in a place second only to Pharaoh so that he could save the world from famine. Right? And save his own family. Somewhere along the line, Joseph of Arimathea had come to believe that Jesus was indeed the long-awaited Messiah. He knew a certain Pharisee named Nicodemus. Of course they knew each other. There were only 70 men in that council. They knew one another. Um, And Nicodemus, remember, had gone to see Jesus secretly by night, soon after the Lord's first public ministry appearance in Jerusalem. Remember the first time, and it was at the Passover, by the way, was four Passovers earlier, when he first came to Jerusalem in his adulthood, in his public ministry, he went straight to the temple. What did he do? Cleansed it. And then the rest of the day, he performed all kinds of miracles. John chapter 2. Well, uh, that night, or soon thereafter, I mean, that had really impressed Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a student of the word. He knew in Malachi, it says that when the Messiah comes, he would come suddenly to his temple. And what would he do? Cleanse it. You know, he's putting two and two together. And so he discreetly, secretly went to see Jesus. And uh, I think that not only did what the Lord did impress Nicodemus, it also had impressed Joseph of Arimathea. Because when Nicodemus went to Jesus, you know what he said? He said, Rabbi, we, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. He was speaking on behalf of someone else, at least one other person. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. I want you to look over now at John chapter 3. Would you please move over there? It's very, very likely that Nicodemus reported to Joseph of Arimathea everything that he had heard from the Lord Jesus that night. They were friends. They were both just honorable men. They were both longing for the Messiah to come. So I feel confident in saying that Nicodemus shared with Joseph what he had learned from the lips of Jesus. What are some of the things he heard from Jesus that night? Well, let me just review for you. Starting at John 3, 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, after he said, Rabbi, we know thou art a teacher come from God. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Most important thing to tell him, wasn't it? And then look at verse 5. Jesus said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you, can, you must be born again. Now go down to verse uh, 13. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Son of Man is a messianic term. He's telling Nicodemus who he was, who he is. And look at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What was he telling Nicodemus? What was he predicting? That he would be lifted up in crucifixion. Verse 15. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting eternal life. I'm getting ahead. He also heard John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
Of course, then he went on and even told him more things. So I believe that Nicodemus shared all these truths with his friend Joseph. And I feel sure that both men who would have ready access to the temple went to the temple and checked out the Lord's genealogy to make sure he met the credentials with his ancestry. I feel sure that they kept up with all the reports of him that went throughout the nation as he was teaching. And I'm sure they heard about all the healing miracles that he performed. And I would feel very confident in saying that both men had managed to be present mingling in the crowds as Jesus taught when he was in Jerusalem and as he debated every one of the various sects of of Israel, S-E-C-T-S, you know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, all of them. Remember, he had just done that on Tuesday. They tried to trip him up over and over again with their little questions, and he soundly defeated them every time with Scripture. I feel confident in saying that Joseph and Nicodemus were mingled in the crowd, and they were hearing him. They had heard definitely about his miracle of raising a four-day dead man just two miles outside of Jerusalem. Everyone was in a stir about it, especially Caiaphas and the other Sadducees in the council. So, of course, these two men heard about it. And then, when the council determined that Jesus had to die, it is expedient for us that one man die for the people. Remember when Caiaphas said that? And, and when they learned that he, they were going to turn him over to the Romans for his execution, both Nicodemus and Joseph could clearly see that Jesus' own prediction about the way of his death being lifted up, that he would be crucified, that that was coming to pass. And as I mentioned a little while ago, we are told that Joseph did not consent to either the plan or the action of the council concerning Jesus. He did not, you know, agree that they put him to death. But neither did he raise any objection, did he? We don't hear him speaking in Jesus' behalf. You see, somewhere along the way, Joseph had become a disciple of Jesus. He had believed that he was who he claimed to be, the Son of Man, the Messiah. But he did so how? Secretly. Why? For fear of the Jews. He feared what they could do to him. And he had a lot. Someone who has a lot has a lot more to lose than someone who doesn't have a lot. I mean, the Galilean fishermen could just go back to fishing, right? But these guys were on the council. They were rulers of Israel. They were wealthy men. They had a lot to lose by being a disciple. Because remember, the council had already uh, agreed. Remember the man born blind, John chapter 9? And Jesus healed him, gave him his sight, and they didn't believe it. And so they brought in his parents, oh. <laughs> his wishy-washy little parents, and they came in, they, they were just, oh, they were cowering, and they said, well, we don't know, he's of age, ask him, you know, as if they didn't know he was born blind, <laughs> you know, and they'd, you'd think they'd speak up for Jesus, who had just given their son, their poor beggar son, I mean, they had him out there begging, and said, I just have no respect for those parents, but anyway, <laughs> you can't tell, I don't have... But the reason they, they were afraid is because the council had already said that if anyone believed openly that Jesus was the Christ, they were to be de They were to be excommunicated, and that means, you know, the end of them. 
No more Jewish social life. They couldn't even be hired. They couldn't have a job. They couldn't sell. They couldn't buy. It was, And so these men, Nicodemus and Joseph, had a lot to lose. They'd be kicked off the council. Um, they'd, they you know, wouldn't be able to mingle with people. It would just be, they'd be ostracized. It'd be a big change for them. So he had been a disciple, both of them, but secretly for fear of the Jews. But the Greek word translated secretly is really interesting because it's given in the perfect passive particle. Partis, particle. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I can't even say it. It's so interesting. <laughs> Participle. <laughs> now, I just made your day telling you that, didn't I? <laughs> Actually, what that means is that it could also be translated having been secreted or hidden away. And it's actually translated that way when it's speaking in Matthew chapter 13 about Jesus speaking in parables, things which have been kept secret since the foundation of the world. So what this means is that even though from his side of the issue, Joseph had been a secret disciple because of peer pressure, his fear of of the Jews, the religious rulers, yet from the divine perspective, He had purposely been kept a secret. He was God's secret agent in the Sanhedrin council. I love that. CIA and FBI and all that, you know. He was like a secret agent. And Nicodemus too. God does have his people in the most unusual places. He was purposely kept a secret by God. The sovereign hand of God was protecting him so that he would emerge from his secrecy at the precise time God needed him. And that time had come. You see, if Joseph had revealed himself as a disciple of Jesus earlier, he no longer would have had the powerful influence to gain an audience with Pontius Pilate. Are you seeing how it all fits together? The providence of God is such that he overrules things like this. He makes use of everything. Do you know that Joseph was a rich man by God's providence and by God's supply? If you're rich, it's because of God, God's providence. He's entrusted the wealth to you. Why? Because he trusts you to use it for his glory and his kingdom. So do so. And you know what? Compared to the rest of the world, every one of us in here is rich. Everything he had was because God had made a prophecy that he would keep. God gave Joseph his wealth and God gave him his position on the council. God even drew him to faith in his son. God gave him friendship with Nicodemus. He had him in the right place, at the right time, with the right credentials, so that his, his heart, Joseph's heart, his love for Jesus, was now, it now was able to rise triumphant over his fear of the Jews. His love took priority over his fear. It had gotten him to that point. I wonder if he wasn't watching Jesus on the cross and learned a lot from watching him calm and majestically suffer the agony of crucifixion. And he thought, like when we saw that young man with no limbs, 
We thought, you know, what have we to complain about? And he thought, ah, I've been a secret disciple. The least I can do now is come out and give him a proper burial. So his love for Jesus rose triumphant over his fear for the Jews. And Mark tells us that he went boldly before Pilate. I love that. You see, even his sudden boldness came from God, didn't it? Now, he doesn't realize it at the time. Joseph doesn't. But there have been over seven centuries at work to bring about this moment. He is in the very process of fulfilling a a prophecy of God given through Isaiah that is over 700 years old. Is that not amazing? And he has no idea what he's doing. You know, God works, sometimes slowly, but he's always at work. So let's follow what happens. Matthew 27, 58, we read that Joseph asked Pilate for Jesus' body. You know, not anybody could get a, uh, an audience with, the, with Pilate, with the Roman governor. But a rich man and a member of the council, he could get just about anybody's ear, right? So he gets an audience with Pilate. And there's a fervency in his plea. He begged for the body. He greatly desired to show respect for the Lord by a proper burial and by placing him in a nearby expensive and beautiful garden tomb that he recently had paid to have hewn out, cut out of solid rock stone. His regret must have been that he had not given Jesus something while he was alive. You know, we often say, well, can there be such a thing as a secret disciple? Here's our answer. Here's our answer. Yes, Joseph was a secret disciple. But I believe he had a lot of regrets about it. I guess you could be a secret disciple. You know, not very bold and timid and hide in your house and put your light under a bushel and all that sort of thing. He says he'll be ashamed. If you're ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of you. And I think you'll have a lot of regrets in your life. I think Joseph had a lot of regrets, but now he did what he could. And of course, God providentially is orchestrating all of it, isn't he? If Joseph of Arimathea had not made this request, Jesus's body would have been removed, as we said earlier, to a place of great indignity. And then Many justifiable questions over the centuries would have arisen concerning the reliability of an empty grave. You know, if he was just thrown somewhere, you could understand why they'd say, well, how do you know he rose from the dead? We don't even know where he was buried. Actually, however, if the Lord's body had been thrown into the Valley of Hinnom, or the Valley of Corpses, as it was called, outside of the city, there would be no reason for even justifiable questions about whether or not he resurrected from the dead because he would have disqualified to be the Messiah. Do you know that? Again, here we go. Even if Jesus had fulfilled every single prophecy regarding the first coming when he said, you know, it is finished, dismissed his spirit, bowed his head, gave up the ghost, and then his bones weren't broken... And his side was pierced, and yet they took his body and threw it in a common burial ground for the criminals. He would have disqualified to be our Messiah. Why? 
because he wouldn't have fulfilled Isaiah 53, 9, where it says, but he would be buried with the rich in his death. So you see how it all has to come together? Not one little part can be missing. It's incredible, isn't it? Well, without asking for an explanation, which is pretty amazing, uh, Pilate gave the order that Jesus' body be released to Joseph. Maybe he thought that Joseph was coming on behalf of the council. I don't know, but he did release the body to Joseph. However, we do learn from Mark that Pilate was surprised when he found out that Jesus was already dead. So I was trying to piece this all together in my mind and figure out how could this be. You know, he had, well, here's probably what happened. We don't have all the pieces of the puzzle, but we know that it would fit if we did. But perhaps he had just sent the soldiers to break the legs of the three crucifixion victims. And maybe they even passed Joseph on the street as he's coming to see Pilate and they're going out to perform a crucifixion. You see, Joseph already knew that Jesus was dead. Um, he, and he had already gone, you know, to get Pilate's permission for the body. I don't know. Maybe he was there at the crucifixion site and actually saw the Lord die. Or maybe he had servants that he told, tell me as soon as he's dead. Some have suggested that maybe he and Nicodemus were in the tomb looking because from the tomb, it wasn't far. You could just look and see Golgotha. I don't know. Maybe he heard the Lord shout, it is finished. Whatever. He knew Jesus had already expired. So as soon as he knew he was expired, he headed over to Pilate. And uh, then we find out that Pilate needed to confirm the truth of the fact that Jesus was dead. So who does he send for? Our friend Longimus. According to tradition, they say his name was Longimus. I can't be dogmatic about that, but the Roman centurion who had been in charge of the crucifixion that day is sent for. And don't get the idea of all kinds of miles here because everything is very close together. Just right outside the city gate and it wouldn't take them long to go to Pilate's Praetorium and back to Golgotha and etc. Okay, so it's just a couple blocks. You walk here and there. So they send for the centurion and once again, that man is used to confirm Jesus' death. What do I mean once again? He had said truly this was the Son of God. He knew he was dead. Joseph did not rescue a living body from the cross. Do you get that? That's important to know. And Pilate saw to it. That was important for Pilate to know that Jesus really was dead. And the centurion in charge of it, his life was on the line. He confirmed, yes, Jesus is dead. And only John tells us about this other friend of the Lord who assisted Joseph with the burial of Jesus's body. You know, if all we had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would think that Joseph alone prepared the body for burial in a linen cloth. It sounds like he took a linen cloth and wrapped the Lord's body in it and then laid it in his own tomb. But John tells us that Joseph was assisted by another very prominent man in Jewish society at that time. A man who, it is said, was one of the three wealthiest men in Jerusalem. Very rich. I don't know where Joseph was on the rich scale, but these were very wealthy men. A lot of money, a lot of prominence. This man was a Pharisee. 
um, and he was a fellow council member with Joseph. We have met him on two other occasions, and both of them were in John. So the only time we ever hear about Nicodemus is from John. I believe John knew him personally. He knew Nicodemus. By the way, what does Nicodemus mean in the Greek? It consists of, it's a compound word, two words. Nike, have you ever had Nike shoes, gym shoes? Nike in Greek means victor. That's why you want Nike gym shoes, so you can be victorious when you're running your marathon, huh? (laughs) Oh, she runs marathons over here, I just found out. That's great. You know, that's a lot of miles. Mm. And demos means, what kind of country are we supposed to be living in? (laughs) A democracy? It means people. Demo, demo in Greek. So, nico, demo means victor of the people or a ruler of the people. He was a ruler. It would seem that Nicodemus had not only given serious thought to what Jesus had spoken to him on that night when he went to him secretly and learned all the truths that we read from John chapter 3, but apparently he had also taken seriously the sarcastic challenge given to him by the council members in John chapter 7. Now, we never heard Joseph speak up on behalf of Jesus, but one time we did hear Nicodemus speak up, rather timidly, but he did. The council was talking about what to do with Jesus. And Nicodemus spoke up and he said, What? Does our law condemn a man before it hears him and sees what he does? And then, remember, very sarcastically they said, Are you from Galilee too? You see their prejudice? against Galileans, and they said, search the scriptures and see if any prophet ever came from Galilee. Well, guess what? I think Nicodemus took up their challenge, and he searched the scriptures. And you know what he discovered? That they needed to search the scriptures, because there were at least three prophets that did come from Galilee. You have Jonah, Nahum, and Hosea, and then the greatest prophet of all, Jesus. But I think while he was searching the scriptures, he became convinced, absolutely convinced, that Jesus was indeed the Messiah predicted to come. You do know that both Joseph and Nicodemus crossed a line that day. They did. They crossed a line that day. From then on, they were marked men. I imagine that they were kicked out of the council, de-synagogued. They couldn't even go to temple services. They couldn't go to synagogue services. They were ostracized from society. But was it worth it? Oh, yeah. Don't you wish we knew the end of their stories? I really do. And that's what I told the women yesterday. That's going to be part of the wonder and greatness of heaven. Besides seeing Jesus and praising him forever and ever, we're going to get to hear everybody's stories. We're going to say, Nicodemus, what did you do with the rest of your life? Did you use your wealth to help out the poor Jerusalem church? Did you travel as a missionary? Did you and Joseph head off to Timbuktu? I don't know. You know, I'd love to know the rest of their stories. No one but a devout disciple or a very close relative would defile himself with a dead body at the time of a high day feast because then they would not be allowed to participate in the ceremonies and the sacrifices of that feast. They would not be allowed to eat the Passover that night. Well... Do you think this mattered to Joseph or Nicodemus? Absolutely not, because they had found the true Passover lamb. And therefore, they did not need all the shadowy ceremonies that merely symbolized him. Nicodemus, we are told, brought a 100 pounds of spices, myrrh and aloes. 
Both of those are very gummy substances. Remember that. It'll become important later on. He brought these spices, and by the way, that's probably about 75 pounds in our weight. But that's still a lot of spice. How would you like to lug around? You ever go to the grocery store and buy 75 pounds of spices? I'd like to know what you were preparing. <laughs> but he brought these to wrap Jesus in. And so he probably had made arrangements with Joseph to meet him at the nearby tomb. Because it would not make a whole lot of sense for Nicodemus to have carried 75 pounds of aloes and myrrh to Calvary and then have to have to lug that weight and the body of Jesus back to the nearby tomb. So they probably had prearranged to meet each other there at the tomb. Both Luke and Mark tell us that it was Joseph who was the one who was faced with the terrible task of taking the Lord's body down from those spikes. And that must have been a very grievous task to perform. He probably had some help from the Roman soldiers. And he was one of the few men who actually touched the blood of Jesus Christ. But did that make him any holier than anyone else? You know, there are a lot of people around the world who would make a big issue of that. Oh, if only I could have touched the blood of Jesus. No. They miss the whole point when they go to artifacts like the Shroud of Turin and things like that, which, by the way, the way they wrap the bodies disproves that shroud because they took the linen cloth and tore it in strips and put the spices in between and wrapped the body. There was no one shroud. That's a, that's a, uh, it's false. Anyway, a lot of people would make a big deal. I've been to other countries. I've seen how they kiss statues and how they rub marble where so-and-so walked and you know, they worship catacombs and have their holy water and all this kind of stuff. Touching the real blood of Jesus wouldn't have saved anybody. The whole thing is that we're washed in the blood. It's spiritual. It's symbolic, you know. Uh, we have to apply the, the blood to the doorposts of our inner man, our heart, where it really matters. The heart, not what we touch externally. But it must have been a very grievous task for him. Well, once the body was carried to the nearby tomb, which was in a garden, it would have been washed. And the two men then wrapped the body, as I said, in strips that were torn from that linen cloth. And those aromatic gummy spices would be layered in the fabric strips. The head was wrapped separately with a napkin, we are told, in John 27. That was the traditional way of doing it. They didn't wrap the head. You know, like Egyptian mummies, don't get that idea. The Jews had a different way. By the way, when they wrapped them, they weren't trying to embalm them like the Egyptians did either. The reason they put all the spices is merely to um, help with the odor of decomposition. It wasn't to embalm. And the way that, the traditional way that they wrapped the bodies was they would wrap the um, arms and legs separately. And that's how, they say, Lazarus was able to walk out of the tomb. You know, his, he had his legs so he could walk. He didn't have to be like a mummy to come out like that, you know. <laughs> um, and these two men, you know, I don't think this was the normal job for men. I think women usually did this job. And I think that's why Mary, the two Marys were sitting there and they were probably very frustrated watching men do this. And thinking, no, 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 we gotta come back. We, and they did. They bought their spices and they prepared their spices and they were ready to come back and do it the right way, weren't they? 
we never got a chance because by the time they came back, he was gone. <laughs> but they're over there very frustrated. But these guys, they did the best they could because they did both have great respect for the Lord. But we don't need to concern ourselves really about how well the Lord's body was prepared because, you see, God had already made certain that his son was anointed for burial with very expensive spikenard perfume. Remember that? Perfume fit for a king. Mary of Bethany, just two nights earlier, on Tuesday night of the Passion Week, she had lovingly lavished her expensive spikenard perfume on the Lord. And according to his own words, she had done so. Why? In preparation for the day of his burial. You see, Mary, Mary was a great example for you and I. She sat at the feet of Jesus, didn't she? And she really listened. Amazing. She actually heard what he said. He said over and over again, I will be crucified. I will suffer at the hands of the religious rulers and at the hands of the Romans, etc., etc. But on the third day, I will rise again. Now, his men never seemed to really hear that because they didn't want to hear it, did they? They wanted to ride into a kingdom on his coattails and sit on his right and left hand. <laughs> but Mary heard, and therefore she did anoint him in preparation for his burial. Do you notice that Mary isn't at the crucifixion site? All kinds of other Marys are there, but she isn't. She didn't need to see that. She didn't want to see that. She wasn't at the tomb either. You know what I think Mary was doing? She was waiting in Bethany for the good news to reach her ears. She had seen what the Lord could do with her own brother. So she had already anointed him. Have you ever thought about the fact that three wealthy people were used by God to reverently prepare the Lord's body for burial with their expensive gifts. You had Mary of Bethany, who poured on him the gift of her costly spikenard perfume, which smelled just as good as frankincense. And then you had the rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, who not only brought the gift of fine, expensive linen cloth, but also gave Jesus his own new rich man's garden tomb. And who else did you have? Very wealthy Nicodemus, who brought to Jesus a hundred pounds of aromatic spices, which included aloes and myrrh. Are you getting the connection? Think of this. Wealthy wise men called Magi, had lavished their expensive gifts upon the Lord, which included frankincense and myrrh, early in his life, when he was just a little guy. Now the wealthy and wise lavish their rich gifts upon him at the end of his life. I say wise because all true believers are wise, aren't they? Isn't that beautiful? Again, we're brought back, you know, the beginning to the end, like the swaddling clothes. There are some definite mysteries about Joseph of Arimathea, some uh, unknowns, like why had he not purchased a tomb for himself in Arimathea, since that's where he was from. Uh, we are told that he laid Jesus in his own tomb, which means that he owned it. 
In other words, he paid for it. It was his. But did he buy it for himself? Or maybe uh, we might wonder if maybe he had a father who was at the point of death or a mother or a close relative that he was that he had had it hewn out just recently. It was brand new. Nobody was in there. Or, or did he have it prepared in anticipation of having it ready for Jesus? One very perplexing question of Bible scholars is why he purchased a tomb so pl- near a place of execution for criminals because that would not be what rich, religious, prominent Sanhedrin member people would do. They wouldn't want to be buried near a place of execution. As a Sanhedrin member, Joseph knew for some time that the council had already decided to put Jesus to death. So it appears that he and Nicodemus had carefully pre-planned their activities with regard to the Lord's body. They had already purchased the spices and the new tomb and the new linen cloth for grave clothes. Everything was ready for immediate use. And when Jesus died, no hesitation whatsoever. They went immediately to work, boldly identifying him with him at a time when it really looked the most bleak. John 19.41 tells us that the Lord was buried in a garden. Now, why do you think that the Holy Spirit added this fact for us to know? Well, do you think it's maybe to take our minds back to another garden? There's another connection with a garden where the first Adam sowed the seed of sin that brought about the horrible fruit of death. It was appropriate, therefore, for the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, who defeated sin and is himself the seed of life, to be sown into the ground of a peaceful garden tomb in order to bring forth the happy fruit, not of death, but of life, eternal life. So again, wonderful connections. It's also important to know that Jesus was buried in a rock tomb. Lots of tombs were cut into the limestone rock hill upon which Jerusalem sits. It's important to know that Jesus was not put into a hole in the ground or that he wasn't thrown onto a heap of unburied bodies because that means that the disciples, his disciples, could not easily have gone and dug him up or, or removed him from the, the, the stack of bodies. Nor could they have dug a tunnel, and some actually say this, but they could not have dug, dug a tunnel into the back of the tomb to steal the body because they could not get into the back of the grave. It was solid rock. I mean, if they wanted to do that, it would take them a long time. And they only had three nights to do it. And besides, outside the tomb was a guard, right? Don't you think they would have heard the axes and the picks? (laughs) The only way into that tomb was past the guard, past the great stone, which was called the Golel, that was rolled across the entrance to the tomb. And the only way out of that tomb was the way into the tomb. So if you hear anybody say that they dug a tunnel, it's just really ludicrous. The Golel was, if you picture a millstone, it was flat and round, and there was a track in which it, they could roll it. It was heavy. This was a great one, we are told. Very heavy. It would take several men to roll it. But they would roll it to add additional members of the family. You know, when Papa died, they'd roll it back and put his body in there. This was a family rich man's tomb. But it's important to know that it was a new tomb. Why do we need to know that? 
so that there's no conflict with any other bodies being in there. We had to know there was only one body in there. No one else had ever been buried in there. Um, Jesus was not only born from a virgin womb, he was buried in a virgin tomb. That would be a good poem, wouldn't it? I'll have to, I'll have to work on that. <laughs> but no, see, God was thinking, you know, no one else was laid in there. God was thinking, he was anticipating every single argument that would come from the skeptics down through the centuries. And he was beating them to the punch by making sure we had all this information. Again, he amazingly provided for scripture to be fulfilled. I'm almost finished. From the beginning, it had been God's providence to provide for the body of his beloved son. The mediator, the one mediator between himself and man. He had that body conceived of God the Holy Spirit. He had preserved that body through many attempts to take its life. And finally, that body was offered as a sacrifice, exactly as scripture had predicted. It was stricken, it was smitten, it was afflicted and wounded, and it was laid on with stripes, and it was pierced, but not a bone of it was broken. And that body, although assigned by two cultures to be buried with the wicked, was buried Instead, just as the scripture had said, in a rich man's tomb. Furthermore, does not scripture tell us that it is by the mouth of two or three witnesses that a fact be established? God saw to it that the burial of his son was witnessed by two women, Mary Magdalene and also Mary, the mother of Joseph and James, and we'll be talking more about them in the future. They bore fact of Jesus' burial and where he was buried and who did it and when he was buried. Was that important? Oh, yeah, to know he was in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. Actually, we could say there were two Galilean women witnesses and there were two prominent Judean men witnesses to the fact of the Lord's burial. Have you ever thought of the fact that God had appointed one Joseph to be the guardian over the Lord's body while in a virgin womb and another to be the guardian of the Lord's body in a virgin tomb? Did you realize that both Josephs, one at the very beginning of the Lord's life, his stepfather, and one at the very end of the Lord's life, Joseph of Arimathea, are called by the Holy Spirit just men. You think that's coincidental? They're both called just men. It's truly fascinating to realize that the first man to ever touch the body of Jesus, perhaps even as the midwife, you know, pulling him from that virgin womb, and the last man to touch the body of Jesus, putting him into the virgin tomb, were both named Joseph. And that the first woman who ever saw the incarnate Jesus was named Mary. And the last two women to ever see Jesus were both named Mary. 
You think that that is just coincidence? I don't think so. I'll tell you why. What Jesus went through was very, very bitter. But because he went through that bitter passion and suffering for you and I, he added greatly to the family of God. Mary in Hebrew means bitter. Joseph in Hebrew means God will add. Not coincidence at all. Let's pray. Father, help us to be like Joseph and Nicodemus at the end of their lives. To be true, bold, and wise disciples of yours. Who, and may we give to you now the best that we have. Not wait till the end of our lives, but give to you now our bodies as living sacrifices. Thank you, Father, for once again glorifying your word in the fulfillment of how your son was buried. It is just all so amazing. We praise you for your sovereign providence. We ask that through these lessons that you are drawing out our hearts to take confident rest in your promises, knowing that you will never fail. Your word does not return void, regardless of what might seem to contradict and oppose the fulfillment of your word in this day in which we live and skeptics all around us who scoff and say, where is the promise of his coming? All things continue as they have been from the beginning. Nonetheless, we know that everything you have declared to come to pass will be accomplished. Even though it might take centuries, you will bring it to pass. And we thank you that you have your people. We may not know about them but you have your people in prominent places. And we ask that you would protect them and use each of us for such a time as this. We love you, Lord Jesus. We pray that you'd protect each woman. Use her to be your witness during the coming week and bring us all back safely. For we pray in your beloved name. Amen.